0: Good morning, church. Hey, at the Exchange Church, we believe in exceeding, um, going above and beyond, being all in all the time. And so today, I just really want you um, to give 100% in hearing the word of the Lord, because I believe that it's transformational. And and like I said, we are the Exchange Church where we go all the way, right? I heard someone say, uh, buy a man a plane ticket and uh, he can fly for a day push him out of the plane, and he can fly for the rest of his life. So, you'll get it eventually. 100% is what we're all about. So I want to I ask you to be all in today as we talk about the fear of God. I don't know, maybe I'll say some things today that are a little uncomfortable. I don't know. Maybe I'll say some things today that... Or countercultural, possibly. Maybe I'll say some things that you grew up hearing or you believe, but it's just kind of drifted from your thought processes. And I just pray that the Lord will settle whatever He wants to settle into your heart and into your spirit today. That will will draw you closer to Him. Because we're all in different seasons, we're all in different positions, and and just because you're in a different place than me doesn't mean that your place is better than my place. I am in the place designed. I am actually perfectly positioned right now in this moment to grow faster and go further than I ever have been in my entire life. Did you know you are too? Right now in this very moment, in this very season, you are perfectly positioned to go further and faster than ever before. I want to take you to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. I thank you so much for who you are and what you're doing in our hearts today, in this church today. I ask that you would just stir among us. God, that you would revive the places of our soul that have grown weak and weary. Possibly the things, the hopes, and the dreams in our life that seem to have long expired, that are dead and gone, Father, that you would breathe new life into that today. In Jesus' name, I pray that the church say, amen, amen. James 4, verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You you notice what comes first, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, which, which is first, my action, right? The Bible is saying if you draw near to God, then God is going to draw near to you. It's it's important for us to understand that because a lot of us like to play hide and seek with God. We like to run and hide because we trust that he will pursue us and find us. But there's something very critical in this notion of intimate relationship with God that requires us to seek him. Uh, us to take that first step in understanding who he is, draw near to God, and he will draw near to us. This is good news today, because that means that you, everybody point to yourself, that means that you get to choose the level of closeness you are with your creator, not God. God is not saying, I think I'll be close to Pedro. I'm, I'm going to back away from Crystal. I'm going to get close to Tom. I'm going to back away from Michaela. God isn't up there choosing favorites, seeing who's, who he wants to be close to, who he wants to hang out with, who he wants to have a potluck with. God is simply responding to people who do what God has asked them to do. And that's exciting. You feel distant from God. It's not on God. You feel like you're praying and your prayers aren't getting answered, or it's hitting the ceiling, coming back down. You're like, God, where are you? God hasn't moved. Draw close to him, and he will draw close to you. He is a responsive, responsive God. James 4 5 says, The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. The spirit that is inside of us yearns jealously. What does yearn mean? It means to long for, to think about, to desire, to to long for intensely and consistently. Consistently is, is that word that gets me because in human relationships, there is not always a consistent yearning. Any of you that are married understand that they're You got married on day one, right? You said, I do. And you were madly in love. You couldn't wait to spend the rest of your life with that person. You've been married now for a year, two years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, whatever it is. If you've been married any length of time, you understand that that yearning for that spouse has not been consistent the entire length of your marriage. There have been days where you thought to yourself, could I just have a little bit of space? Am I telling the truth? Like, I don't know, Michaela and Lawrence, you guys have been married two years. Within the two years, if you wouldn't mind being a bit vulnerable and transparent, would you agree that there have been at least, there's been at least one hour in that two years where you thought, can I please? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) okay, Lawrence, yeah, okay. That's normal. Isn't that, that's a natural ebb and flow of relationships. Like that's not abnormal. It doesn't mean that your your marriage is dysfunctional. It doesn't mean it's not healthy. Sometimes you just need a bit of a breather. Like you still love them. You're not wanting to get a divorce. You're not wanting to run away. You're not wanting them to to die. You, you just don't like them for an hour. Or or you you like them at a distance for an hour. Right? Distance or absence makes the heart grow wonder, I think we can all admit, No, every husband is scared to agree with all of this that I'm saying right now. They, they're like, I have never wanted distance from my wife. The wives are like, yes. <laughs> but the spirit that dwells in us yearns for fellowship with you so consistently, there's never an hour of your life that God doesn't love you, that god doesn't like you, that god's not proud of you, that god's not thinking about you I want you to understand that today, like as much as you love your spouse and you you've admitted to me today at least that there's been at least a brief moment in the history of your marriage where you've thought. Can I just have a bubble bath alone? Or can I go work in the garage alone? Whatever it is, God has never had that thought about you. Psalm 139, 17 through 18 says, How precious also are your thoughts toward me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. If we were to count the number of thoughts, Davy, that God has about you, your your entire life, they would outnumber the grains of sand on planet Earth. Now, I've been to a few beaches, not all of them, but I know there's a lot of sand. I've driven through some deserts. And I've walked on some hot sand, and I know there's a lot of sand. Some of you like to play golf, and you spend some time in the sand trap, and in that moment, there's a lot of sand. The thoughts that God has toward you outnumber every single grain of sand on planet Earth. Now Let's put that into perspective for a moment. This shoebox, you'll hear more about this later, but just as an illustration, this is approximately, this is a very rough estimation, approximately one cubic foot. OK, it's approximately one cubic foot. Scientists tell us that in one cubic foot, if I were to fill it with sand, there would be 1.8 billion grains of sand in this box. Yet the Spirit of God is telling you that His thoughts toward you that are good outnumber the grains of sand on the entire planet in which you stand. When you're walking on the beach, the, the sand that one foot displaces, billion grains of sand. And God is saying, His thoughts towards you outnumber that. So, so my question to you today, is if God is so crazy in love with you. I mean, he's saying that he is, that he's thinking about you that much, right? And God doesn't exaggerate. He doesn't exaggerate like fishermen do, Dave. (laughs) Right? I caught a fish this big. And you look at the picture and you're like, wow, why are your arms so far out? Because perspective, you're making it. You get what I'm saying? They don't. God doesn't exaggerate like fishermen. God doesn't exaggerate like preachers do. Oh, by the way, we had a great men's breakfast yesterday. It was amazing, fearless men's breakfast at 8 a.m. yesterday. We had 1,500 men show up. See, that's an exaggeration. For those of you that weren't here, you're like, w- I missed it. No, we wouldn't fit 1,500 in that well, but we did have 50 people, 50 men at 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning, 100% of them actually on time. So that explains to me, never mind. (laughs) When we're late, there's a reason other that we're late than men. I don't know. I'm just guessing because 100% of men were on time yesterday, 8 a.m., 50 men. That's a big deal. They were hungry. They were hungry. That's right. Well, they didn't look... We didn't look very put together, did we, David? We just rolled out of bed and ate, but I mean, that's a big deal. Fifty men, by the way. I don't know if you know that that's a big deal. that's really a big deal. And so I just want to, man, thank you guys the the wives and the the family, the kids and all of you for allowing them to be a part of that and um maybe that was that was the brief window where you got to breathe yesterday morning, uh, but we had a great we had a great time. but preachers exaggerate, don't we? oh, we've got 20,000 services all over the world. And and sometimes we don't even mean to exaggerate. We're just so excited about what we're saying. We just kind of be like, oh yeah, 100 people got saved today. And you think, 100 people don't go to your church, you know? But preachers exaggerate, fishermen exaggerate, um, kids exaggerate when they claim that they've cleaned the entire room. You know, I've cleaned my whole room. No, you picked up one shoe. But you know who doesn't exaggerate? God. It's not in his nature to try to make you believe something more than what he's doing. Because it's in his nature and his capacity to do even more than what you think he can do. So when he says to you that his thoughts toward you outnumber the grains of sand, it's not a hyperbole, it's not poetic persuasion to get your attention It is the truth from the mouth of God that you actually, I don't know if this surprises you, but to even think that I might have inside of me the ability to have 1.8 billion times every foot on the planet earth, things for God to think about. And if God yearns for me that much, and if he yearns for you that much, The next question we have to ask ourselves is, why are not 100% of us encountering an intimate relationship with God? If he is really that crazy about every single Christian, he's crazy about everyone, but every single Christian on planet Earth that has said yes to him, we know for certain that he has these thoughts towards Why are we not all flourishing and thriving, rooted and grounded in a very intimate relationship with God? Because it's not God making choices of who gets to be close. I think the foundation of intimacy with our creator can be reflected in what God tells us about husbands and wives. I I love the notion of reading in scripture, Ephesians 5, great chapter, by the way, for all of you men and women. It's it's an uncomfortable chapter, but if you pray about it and read through it and understand it, it's a phenomenal chapter that will revolutionize your marriage. But I love to read in Ephesians chapter 5 what God says about men and women, husbands and wives, the covenant that, that God has established for marriage because it represents and reflects the relationship between the creator and the created. It's not a coincidence that the church is called the bride of Christ and that he's called the groom. And so if we want an intimate relationship with our creator, let's see what God says about husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter five, verse 33. It says, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife. He's talking to men here. Let each one of us in particular love his own wife as himself. God is commanding the husband to love his wife. And let the wife, God is about to command the wife now. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. So God is commanding the husband to love, and he's commanding the woman to respect. That's interesting. in fact, we have a book, Love and Respect, that is is phenomenal. You should read it as a couple. But um, the reason God commands men to love is because it, it somewhat goes against what's most comfortable for us. It's easy for men, and I'm speaking in generalities, by the way. If you don't, if you don't fit this exact uh, situation, that's okay. But for the most part, it's easy for men to respect one another. This is why you can have a, a disagreement. Me and Travis can disagree, and we have a conversation about it, or he hits me, and I hit him back, and then we're best friends again. Right? You ever seen that in a situation? Men, they have beef, they deal with it. Okay, we can move on we can still be in relationship because we understand respect or in the workplace, we respect one another, but, but love on the other hand, love is difficult. This is why it takes us so long to propose and commit because can we, can we, can we love one person forever? Forever. This is why it's so hard while we have children growing up never hearing their dads say that they love them because can I articulate that? I, is that manly? Like, that's uncomfortable. I'd rather just do X, Y, Z with you than communicate love towards you. God commands men to love because he understands it takes required focus, energy, and effort for a man to love the way Christ loves the church. Are you with me? God commands the woman to respect because that takes focused energy to respect her man. She doesn't need focused energy to love. The woman is brilliant at loving, she can love anything and everything at once. She can love enchiladas and her husband and the butterflies and the sunrises, and she'll cry when she hears a song that's beautiful because love just oozes out of her. She sees the brokenhearted and she wants to nurture them. She sees a little kitty cat that's run over and wounded and she wants to go and get it and rescue it and feed it. I remember like growing up as a kid, we had squirrels that were bottle, squirrels, bottle fed. Women know how to love, but their area they they need focused energy, according to scripture. I mean, maybe that's why God commanded them to respect, is because they might be tempted to not respect. And you've heard the saying, by the way, culture goes against you, women. We we've learned this very faulty, non-scriptural saying in culture that says. They have to earn our respect. Respect is never earned, by the way. Respect is not given because someone has earned it. Respect is given because you have been commanded by God to give respect. Many marriages could be healed immediately if you would hear this. You don't wait for your husband to act respectable before you give respect. You give respect, and something inside of him shifts by the power of God, because you're submitting to what God has called you to do. Husbands, you don't love your wife because she just looks lovable or she just does lovable things that you want her to do. You love, even if you feel like she's not loving you back, even if you feel like she's not respecting you like you think you deserve, you love her anyway. You lay your life down for her Anyway, not because these people are lovable. In fact, you never know how much you love or have the capacity to love until you try to love someone that's unlovable. God has called us. He has commanded us men to love and women he's commanded you to respect. Now, listen, you've got that. You've got that. Now let's transition that into the context of our creator. He is the groom. We are the Bride. John 3 16, a verse many of us have memorized, God demonstrates that which he commands all grooms to do. And he says, For God so loved the world. That he gave his, oh, anybody getting chill bumps like I just did? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And in response to that love, the bride is called to respect, which is known as the fear of God. It is the fear of God that cultivates intimacy with your creator. Not the casualty of God, not the the oh Jesus is my homeboy mentality. Oh, we just we're good, we're we're great friends. We just kick it with Jesus. It's the fear of God that releases the secrets of heaven into your life. Psalm two eleven says, "Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling." Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Psalm 89 7 says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. You know, Jesus could not perform miracles in his own hometown. I believe because there was no reverence and respect for the authority that he carried. And I wonder how many miracles can't be performed in our own life because we don't revere the authority and the nature of God in our life. Getting into the presence of God, when it says, fear the Lord your God, and and you go before him with trembling. That's trembling in his presence and trembling at his word. So how do you get into his presence? The trembling isn't, isn't a convulsion. Trembling is not fear. Trembling is not nail-biting. Trembling is simply encountering, responding to what the Spirit of God is doing in your life. How do you get into the presence of God? God Jesus tells us when he tells the disciples how to pray, what does he say? He says, our Father... Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The first thing Jesus says for them to say is, How holy is your name? It's reverence, it's respect, it's the fear of God. This is, before we step into anything else in the spirit realm, we first need to step into the fear of God, the respect of God. Hallowed. What does hallowed mean? It means consecrated, set apart, holy. Leviticus 10, 1. The sons of Aaron each took his censer and put a fire, put fire in it, put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord. What is profane in, in this context? Profane means calling anything that is holy, calling it common. Profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And we go on to the next verse and see that the fire went out from the Lord and devoured them and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy and before all the people I must be glorified. So in the Old Testament, God is saying, hey, you want to approach me? You need to see me as holy. There needs to be a fear and a reverence. How many of you agree the Old Testament God is that way? Like, that's pretty clear to see. You did something wrong, bam, you're dead. How many are thankful that we are alive in 2019? (laughs) God help us. You know, uh, just going off notes for a moment. Abraham was a friend of God. You remember Abraham climbed up the mountain and he was going to sacrifice his son, Isaac, right? And, and there wasn't an offering and, and he, he takes his son, lays him on the altar, and he raises the dagger. And just as he is about to kill his son, The angel of the Lord says, Moses, Moses, Abraham, wait. Do you remember that? If you go back and look at this verse, you'll see that the voice says, wait. For I now see that you fear me. What God was proving in that scenario, seeing how much Abraham, how close Abraham wanted to be with God was the fear of God. And I'm concerned, I'm concerned that we have elevated so much the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, that we have pushed down the truth of God, the reverence, the holiness, the fear of God. Isn't Abraham also the one that God came down and talked to about Sodom and Gomorrah? Abraham, he's, he's like around a tree. And God shows up and says, Hey, Abe, I was thinking, man, I was thinking about destroying those two cities. What do you think? And Abraham says, Wait, wait, wait what? Wait, God, what? Well, you can't do that. He's thinking, My nephew Lot lives there. And God says, I'm thinking about what do you, I don't even know why I'm crying right now. Okay, so get over that trait. <laughs> I think I'm just feeling a bit emotional with the fact that God came down and asked the opinion of a man what he should do. And Abraham entered into that space of friendship only through the door of fear, through the door of respect and honor. Well, you know the story anyway. Abraham says, well, if there are 50 that are righteous, will you save the city? And God was like, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Maybe if there are 50. And then Abraham freaks out and he's like, well, I don't know if there are 50. Maybe there are 42 and a half. If there are 42 and a half. And God's like, oh, okay, yeah. Well, finally it goes down to like 10. And Abraham's thinking, well, I know my son, thats or my nephew Lot, that's one. Surely there's nine more, you know? And God is is having this conversation with Abraham Because there is a friendship, but a lot of us want to claim friendship with God without ever walking in the fear of God. And I'm afraid that culture has convinced you that you have a friend in Jesus, but you don't have a friend in Jesus because you've never had fear of God. I'm screaming too loud to be on the subject of fear of God, so I'm going to tone it down. That's Old Testament, though. I mean, that's Old, Old Testament, right? Whew, thank you, Jesus. That's just Old Testament. We don't have to worry about that. I mean, as long as we don't look at Acts chapter 5. <laughs> Acts chapter 5, after the Holy Spirit comes, Ananias and Sapphira. I don't really want to talk about that, but let's just go there for a moment. They were having a big offering at the church and they had a visitor. He was from Cyprus. His name was Barnabas. He's a wealthy man. He's a cool guy. But he, he, you know, came, dropped a couple million down at the offering for the offering, and they're celebrating the, the offering. Ananias and Sapphira, probably the biggest givers in the church, used to getting celebrated and honored for all that they did. They saw that this guy dropped a few million, and they get kind of offended. And so, Ananias goes and he sells his biggest property and he, he's got like makes millions on it. But he and his wife decide not to give it to the offering to the Lord, just give enough to where they now look like the bigger giver over Barnabas. And so they drop only 4 million. And Peter says, hey, the Lord sees what you're doing. And this was a move of God, like the presence of God was here. And you want to make fun and make light of the presence of God oh gosh, this is the New Testament, isn't it? This is after Jesus died and we're now in our final covenant, the covenant that you and I are in. Oh my God, there's a move of God. The presence of God is there. Ananias comes and tries to play the church and Peter says, what are you doing? God knows what you did. And Ananias falls dead. New Testament relationship with God. That's pretty scary. Now that's a bad church growth strategy right there you got to come to our church Our, our pastor preached about how new testament people die instantly when they do the wrong thing that's not exactly what i'm saying i am simply saying that there's something very weighty to the presence of god that even we can't rationalize and put our mind to and say oh that's just old testament god Because when we put God into a box, he might just show us otherwise. That's why we fear the Lord. We respect the Lord and we work out our salvation with trembling. Fearing God is trembling in his presence. What is his presence? Let me just say this real quick. There's two types of presence in scripture. There's omnipresence. God is everywhere at all times, right? God is both at church and at the beach simultaneously. How many wish you had that gift? (laughs) Can I just be faithful at church and the beach on the same day? Yeah, I wish I had that gift. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. His presence is everywhere. You can't push God's presence out of anything. But there's another thing called the manifest presence of God that settles in a room or in a life or in a family, that in an instant things shift. The trajectory was going this way and now it's going this way. We call that a Kairos moment where God steps on the scene and suddenly cancer is healed. Suddenly people are filled with the Holy Spirit. Suddenly destinies are shifted. Do you know what I mean? You you probably experience it like you, you... encountered a kairos moment, you've encountered the manifest presence of God in those moments where you're like, ooh, I got little chill bumps. You ever had like the back, the the back of your, the hair on the back of your neck kind of stand up because you just feel the presence of God. Right? That's not the omnipresence of God. That's the manifest presence of God. Where, Where God, in fact, I believe during the last song that we just sang that there were people in the room that God instantly rewired their brain to break them free from the addiction of pornography in this room. That's the manifest presence of God at work. We, we live with fear and trembling through his presence, but also at his word. Like when God says to do something, what does fear look like? It means doing what God says when he says it, how he says it, with whom. He says to do it with. God will often tell us to do something and we try to cut deals. And you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. I'll give you one example that's happened to me personally is someone gets up to take offering and you just feel like God says, oh, you need to give 200 bucks. And I'm like, God, is that you? No, that's, that's not God. I know that's not God. If it was God, he, he knows I don't have $200 to give this month in my budget. God wouldn't have said that. And then God says, okay, give 300. I know that's the devil. (laughs) You know, we try to cut deals with what God tells us to do. But the reality is, if we want to have intimacy with God, we've got to love what God loves and hate what God hates in scripture, when God is talking about Jesus, after the resurrection, Hebrews nine, God is saying about Jesus, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. All of us in today's culture, we're really good about loving righteousness. Even people that don't claim to follow Jesus love the righteous things that God says for us to do. Feed the poor. Feed the hungry, clothe the poor, reach out to the orphans and the widows. Do you know there are tons of organizations doing that that are not under the name of Jesus, right? Why? Because as a general rule, we love righteousness, the right thing to do. We love to help the brokenhearted. We love to get people out of abusive situations. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus to do that, but you know what differentiates us from just the righteous, loving people. It's the second part of that, hating wickedness. When we embrace and we tolerate, there have been moments in my life when I have asked the Lord, what's the hindrance? What's the, You know I love you, God. What's the hindrance? Why why am I not going to that next step? Why am I not feeling your presence? Why is this not happening? And the response is, because you tolerate the things that I don't tolerate. You see, I can love like Jesus loves all day long, but if I don't reject that which Jesus rejects, Psalm 25, 14. Another reason we should fear him is to know his secrets. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. How many of you here in the room have secrets? How many of you have secrets? Those that aren't lifting your hand, you're afraid that I'm going to make that a bad thing and you may not walk out of this service because God's going to strike you dead. I, I didn't say bad secrets. I just said secrets. Like, how much is in your bank account? Do you tell everyone that? Do you tell everyone your pin? Do you tell everyone your pin, your, your, your card pin? Then everyone has a secret, unless you put your pin on social media. We all have secrets, right? We all have secrets. And we share those secrets with others based on the closeness they are with us. My wife knows my pen because she's my wife and I trust her and because we have the same pen. (laughs) My kids know my pen because we're close and I trust him. And sometimes I want them to go into the store for me. right? But but there, all of you don't know my pen. And it's not because I don't love you and I don't trust you. It's just, there's a, there's a distance in the relationship between you and me and then my wife and me. That seems reasonable, right? We release secrets based on the proximity of the person that's to us. You have a best friend that you call up and you say, can you believe this happened? Oh my God, I just went to, oh, and I wanted to say this. And you tell all of these secrets that you would not dare tell anyone else. But the Bible is saying, the verse that I just read to you just now is that God has secrets too. That he wants to share with his close friends. And who are his close friends? The verse said, those who fear him. If you treat God casually, you can't be his best friend. John 15, you are my friends. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Some of you are like, wait a minute, Trey, you're contradicting yourself. Jesus is calling us friends. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. How many are familiar with that verse? You are a friend of God. You're no longer a slave to fear. You've heard this verse, right? You've heard it. Now, unless you were actually reading your Bible when I read this, or reading your phone, the scripture, you would have missed the fact that I left off half of the verse. It sounded normal to you. You are my friends. No longer do I call you servants because that's the part we memorize because that's the convenient and fun part of the verse. But the full verse says, you are my friends if you do whatever I commanded you. You see, access to being a friend of God is obedience to his word. And if you're not obedient to his word, you're not a friend of God, and you are still considered a servant. Now listen, theologically, I believe that the people that are going to heaven, there will be friends of God and servants of God. The friends of God who feared him, who respected him, who were in awe of him who placed him at the highest level where he deserved, then gained access into the heart of God, and God released the secrets of heaven to them. They are his friends. They're going to heaven. But there are people who have said yes to Jesus, who are going to heaven. Their eternity is is secure. But they will never know the secrets of heaven. They'll never fully feel the heartbeat of God because they fell to fear him. And enter into friendship with him. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. How close do you want to be? How close do you want to be to your Creator? How close do you want to be to God? The ball's in your court. Let us pray. Father, we. We thank you for the opportunity to draw close to you, to know the secrets of heaven, to hear your voice with more clarity by stepping into the fear of God, the respect of God, the honor of God. And God, it's through that honor, through understanding who you are and the the authority that you carry in our life and understanding that if your word said it, It's settled in our hearts and in our lives. Understanding that you reign supreme and you can make any decision you want to. You don't have to justify it before us. God, if you say left, I go left. If you say right, I go right. If you say to stop, I stop. God, let me enter into the fear of God so that I can fully embrace the friendship of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.